All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Welcome, welcome, a formal welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It's great to be back. All right, so here's the deal. Um, first of all, I'm going to mute everybody online. Uh, don't worry, at any point in time, feel free to unmute yourself, to ask a question, jump in, add a comment, etc. All right, we are still learning. I know it's been, it's been a few weeks. We are still absolutely learning our text that I've called Learning How to Love because... Spoiler alert, we still need more love in this world. That's what's going on. We still, you know, I started this, this series last year, pretty much a year ago. I think some of you were with me last year when we started this. Um, it was right after Simchat Torah, right after the holidays. Remember that? We started it right after the holidays, right after the, uh, the Jewish high holidays. We started the series. It's, the Hebrew is called, as you know, it's, it's called Hey Chaltzu, Tafresh Nuntes. Um, this dates back to the year 1898, 1899. Um, Hechaltzu is a discourse that was authored by the fifth Chabad Rebbe. I'm just kind of resetting this before we jump in. The fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, who wrote it, who taught it. Um, it's a series of chapters. It's a long discourse. And he taught it for one purpose, one express purpose, and that is to foster a greater sense of unity and community amongst the people because he sensed that there was a fracturing of the community. And let me, let me elaborate on that for a moment. There, there's an origin story that I don't want to tell exactly all the details. Hey, Toba, welcome. It's good to see you. Um, I, hey, um, I don't want to um, you know, get into the nitty-gritty of the origin story, but let me give you the short version of it. The origin story has it that he saw... This, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe saw how there were, there, there was an incident, one specific incident that allowed him to realize that the unity and the love amongst the chassidim, amongst his disciples, wasn't where it needed to be. And that, and that really spawned and that spurred this discourse called Hechotzu, which is all about Ahavas Yisrael, which is all about loving our fellows ourselves and getting along with the other. So it's very important to realize that this text is not, was not, does not emerge from a theoretical place or in a vacuum. It's from a very real place of understanding the need of understanding the, the, the need of people to get along better with each other and the dangers of not getting along with each other. You know, a year ago when we started this, um, certainly the world was in need of healing and in need of unity. And I think a year later, the world is still in a need of unity and healing because we're still not, look, present company excluded, obviously, but we're not, the, we're not all getting along the way we could be, right? I'm not, I don't want to paint a dire picture or negative picture, but there's room, is there room for improvement? I would raise my hand and say, yes, there's room for improvement in, in, getting, in human beings getting along with human beings. It's always been a challenge but it's something we need to really embrace. I'll tell you this. This is something that came up in our discourse. You heard me say it a few months ago, probably now three or four months ago in this class, Kabbalah and Coffee. Um, the first temple was destroyed because of the three cardinal sins. Immorality, idolatry, and murder. The first temple lay in ruins for 70 years. The second temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred, people not getting along with each other. And it's been destroyed now for almost 2,000 years. You know why? Because the other sins 
we fixed, more or less. More or less. But the baseless hatred, they're not getting along with each other, we're still struggling with that. And so the temple is still not rebuilt. And the message is, as our sages tell us and as the Kabbalists tell us, when you, it, it, the simple formula is if you remove the cause, you'll remove the effect. The cause of the temple's destruction, the cause of exile, is baseless hatred. Remove the cause and replace it with baseless love, which I'll explain in a moment what that means, and undo the consequence, which means a world that's bringing in, renewing a world that is healed and peace on earth. What's the, what is the opposite of baseless hatred? It's baseless love. It means I have no reason to love you, but I love you anyway. In other words, I have maybe, maybe, I don't even want to say and, and something so negative, but maybe I have every reason in the world to dislike you because you did this and you said that and you believe the other. I have all the excuses in the world. But avas chinam means I love you nonetheless, right? Notwithstanding, notwithstanding the, um, the rationale that I could have to not love, hey, good to see you. Notwithstanding that rationale, I still love. And that's what we're talking about here today. Good to see you, Lisa. Welcome. So, baseless love. To replace baseless hatred. How do we love? How do we... Just, just to keep everybody... Uh, on the same page. So how do we love unconditionally? Even when there might be a reason to not love. How does that work? So here's where the Kabbalah comes in. And this is what we've been focusing on for the last, I would say, listen, we haven't been here in a few weeks, but the last, I would say, just about um, four weeks of Kabbalah, maybe even a little bit more, four to six weeks, we've been folk, and this is, this is going to get us into our text today, which we're going to, I think we did a little bit of chapter 29, but we're going to reset it with chapter 29. So here's where the Kabbalah comes in. And, and here's the formula. The reason why, and this is the big idea, the reason why human beings are split with each other is because we have a split internally. In other words, when we're not at peace within ourselves, that's when we're not at peace with the other. Conversely, when we are at peace with ourselves, then we, are, we can be at peace with the other. That's the formula, the formula the way it goes. So as long as we have a an inner dichotomy, there's an inner split between, between the various aspects of, and we're going to explore this in depth, what that means that there's an inner split. But as long as there's an inner split, whether it's between different parts of our personality, whether it's between our ideas and our feelings, or whether it's between our ideas and our feelings and our actions, as long as there's a split inside, there's more likely that there's going to be a split outside. So the key to, to global harmony starts within with inner harmony. That's the key. The key to inner heart, the key to, to universal harmony starts on an individual level. 
like anything in this world, if you want to affect something on a global level, it has to first begin on a local level. You know, that's why, you know, the, the joke is, you know, we love, theoretically, we love everybody except for our neighbor that leaves the trash can out for too long, right? Everybody we love except for the neighbor, the nudnik neighbor, right? So that's like loving globally but hating locally. And I'm only using that example because it's a low-hanging fruit example and it's, you know, a safe example. Um, but look, it's, it, it's not even about the neighbor. It's about ourselves. There was once a person, there was once a fellow who met with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And this person remarked in the context, in the midst of this conversation, this person remarked that the Rebbe's Hasidim seem a little bit too happy. Chabanik seem a little bit too happy. <laughs> right? What's wrong with them? What's wrong with all these Chabadniks that are like way too joyous? They seem a little bit naive, right? They seem a little bit naive. So, so the Rebbe said it's not naivete. What it is is a lack of a kera. Kara means like a rip or a, um, it's the lack of a breach, if you will. In other words, most people have, many people, have a disconnect between what they believe in and what they're, and what they're actually doing, how they're actually living. And that causes internal strife and internal tension. Because you believe one thing, you feel another thing, you're doing a third thing, and it creates all sorts of inner turmoil. And how happy can you be if inside your kishkas, your innards are turned in all sorts of directions? You're pulled and pushed in all sorts of directions, and you're not feeling at peace. So how happy are you going to be if you're not at peace? Whereas if somebody can be aligned, if we can have that alignment, then we can strive to have that piece. And the truth is, today, my focus is really on the bigger picture. You know, it's not only about us feeling comfortable, but what that does for the society that we live in. Because when people are unhappy, they typically are going to be unhappy with someone else. That's the way it is. We start off with inner unhappiness, and then it gets pushed onto someone else. And that's what creates the friction. And so that's why, in our text, which is completely this hechotzu, which is completely about getting along with someone else. Really, the second half of this discourse is all about the internal work that we need to do. It's all about the inner work, about getting more at peace with ourselves. So let's jump into the Kabbalah. And I'm going to start off the Kabbalah conversation um, with, I'm going to start off the Kabbalah conversation by kind of resetting some themes that we've talked about in the recent Kabbalah and Coffee classes. But again, it's been, it's been a few weeks, so I think it's very important to reset it just so that we can, you know, advance it all on the same page. So let's go. The first two soul powers, the first two powers of the soul, Kochot and Efesh, are Chachma and Bina. 
Chachma, and Bina. And Chachma, we've explained at length, is intellectual creativity. And Bina is intellectual, not creativity, but it's um, understanding, analysis, comprehension. It's about breaking things down. So Chachma is kind of like big picture dreaming. And Bina is micro. So you have kind of the macro, the big idea, and then you have the micro, the focused, you know, breaking things down piece by piece. Those are the two personas of Chachma Bina. We've explained how Chachma, when you know something on the level of Chachma, you don't really know it. You know that you know it, but you don't really know it yet. It's kind of like that. Um, it's the vision that you have of the idea. It's that notion that I got it, or there's something big here, or there's something creative here, but you can't really explain it yet. You can't really put your finger on it yet. You can't really define it yet, because that's a Bina operation. So Chachma is considered to be Ayin. It's not... We, we got we to gotta do this. We got to do this in a way that's uh, that's sustainable for everybody. So, um, so chachma is the idea, the notion of the unknown. It's the no. Well, it's I don't know if it's the known unknown. It's you know it, but you don't really know it. It's not a hundred percent drill down. That's chachma. And Bina is very much understood, very much broken down, very much compre comp comprehended. So Chachma is Ayin, is nothing. Quote, it's, right? It's called, referred to as Ayin, is nothing. Whereas Bina is Yesh. Because Bina is Yesh means something, it's tangible. So on the Bina level, I understand it, it's tangible. On the Chachma level, I'm still not understood. So Chachma is considered to be the idea of the way, it's, the way it's explained in Kabbalah. Let me just make sure to pull up the, right, the correct reference here. We have the idea of Chachma, which is considered to be a state of... A second here. We basically have this interplay between light and darkness, where we have big light, right? Big light, too much, and then you have a darkness, a concealment to break it down, and then big light again, and then concealment. And this is the interplay between light and darkness, and Chachma and Bina, and concealment and revelation, and Simsum and Gilim, giving you the Kabbalistic terms. You have this interplay between the different energies. And these are conflicting forces. And that's really where we're going with this. Inside of, inside of us, inside of our souls, the very first two soul powers, Chachma and Bina, are conflicting powers. And because they are conflicting powers, they could lead to an inner break, to a kera, to an inner break. But the way a human being is wired naturally is that Chachma and Bina should work together. And she'll work together in a way that's sustainable. 
And the reason why, and this is, this is getting straight to where we're, where we're at in this week, the, the new stuff, the reason that they work together, Chachma and Bina, internally within us, naturally, right, even though they're opposites, is because they both, they both emanate from a higher source, from a source beyond both of them. They both emanate from a source that transcends their individual, individuality and their particularism, particularisms. So Chachma, if it's just Chachma and just Bina pitted against each other, yeah, there's conflict. One is Ayin and one is Yesh, one is undefined, one is defined, one looks at the big picture, one looks at the, at the small picture. It's very different personalities. And that could lead to conflict and tension. The way it works is that since they both emanate from the essence of the soul, or if you want to go even beyond that, they emanate from the essence of God, because everything's coming from the essence of God, including these powers within the universe and within the human soul. So because they emanate from the essence, therefore, and on the level of essence, the individual particular qualities of Chachma and Bina are not pronounced, because within the essence, right, you don't have opposites, you just have essence. That's what can bring out the, um, the connection between them. In other words, sometimes in order to bring about a connection between opposites, we have to take a step back and go a little bit deeper, go a little bit back to the core and understand where does it all come from and why is it that these two things are or appear, appear at least appear to be opposites. And we'll understand when we go to the source how the opposites are not opposites at all, they're actually complementary. And when you understand that, then you can find a place of of, um, of harmony within the, in the, within the individual particulars. So just to give just a very basic example of this, it could be that two individuals in a relationship, right, get into a moment of tension, get into a moment of, of fighting, and they, at some point, they might, they might take a step back and say to themselves, or say to each other, hopefully, you know, wait a second, you know, we're getting locked into, we're getting our horns locked, so to speak, on a very, uh, very, you know, detailed item over here. But if we take a step back, what's at the core, right? What's at the core of the relationship? We have shared goals. We have common interests. We have, we, we have all of this stuff in common, and, and not only in common, but we have all this stuff that we're working toward together. These, these details are minor, insignificant, like not even on the radar relative to the big picture. So again, I'm just giving a very simplistic, overly simplistic, I know, example of what it means to look at the big picture. I think in one of the previous classes I gave the example of, you know, the, the pale blue dot, the picture from outer space. How when you look at the world, planet Earth, from all the way out there, you wonder like, why is anybody fighting? I mean, it's so, it's so small floating in, in the, just in, in the cosmos, like what, how, how could it be? And we have such a limited time here on earth. How could it be that we're fighting? So again, these are, this is a perspective. The idea is that when you go to the core, at the core, which transcends the particulars, that's a good place to, to energize, to, sorry, to renew the idea that the opposites are not so opposites because at the core, they're not opposites at all. They're all part of the same essence. Now, I'm going to stop and check in for a moment just to make sure that, it, that we're all on the same page and everything so far is more or less, maybe not 100%, but more or less making sense. Yes? Yes? Ish? Okay. All right. Any questions or comments thus far? 
Okay, so let's jump in. I want to start with chapter... Does everyone have a copy? Okay, I'm going to pull up the, my screen over here, the PDF. Bum, ba -dum. I'm going to share my, my screen with you, and I'm going to read it from the screen. It's the same thing that we have for those that are joining us in person. We have the same text, same pages. Everything is the same. We're starting on page 64. And again, we may have, I, I believe we started this chapter. We may have even completed this chapter um, when we were meeting before the holidays. But nonetheless, it's important that we get a running start into the new, into the new content. And therefore, we're going to jump in. Okay. Oh, and by the way, I should mention, very importantly, that um, we just read yesterday in synagogues around the world, we just read the Torah portion of Bereshit, which speaks about the beginning. And when it comes to the opening chapter and verses of the Torah, the Torah talks about these notions, the Torah alludes to these notions that Kabbalah speaks of, the idea of light and darkness and symptom and revelation, etc. So again, it's all timely. It all works out. It's all by divine providence that we're studying this as we are. Okay, so chapter XXIX, which in our language is chapter 29. Here we go. Before a teacher desires to transmit a concept or wisdom to a student, the light of his intellect and wisdom shines within him as it truly is. For his own understanding, it does, for his own understanding, it does not have to be contracted at all. And this is a major idea. The notion of tzimtzum, which is contraction. The Kabbalistic doctrine of tzimtzum is that originally God filled the entire space of space before there was a thing called space. That's defined space. God filled everything, right? Before time and space, it was just God. In the language of Kabbalah, it was who Shmo. It was him and his name. Just God and his infinite light. Okay? It was God and his infinite light. And then when God decided to create, to create a finite environment, so then there was a tzimtzum. The tzimtzum means a contraction. And what does contraction mean? Contraction means that instead of God taking up all the space, God leaves now space for otherness to emerge. So, again, an example that I always like to use about this, imagine you're at a party, and there's somebody at the party that has a very big personality, and they're in the room, and they take over the room, right? And no, like they're the center of attention, and they're doing all the, you know, the party is circled around them, okay? They're taking up all the space almost, right? They're, they're filling the entire space. What happens when they walk out of the room? Oh, so now someone else can fill the space. Or if they decide to kind of to shrink a little bit, then that will give others the opportunity, the platform to speak. And again, I, I don't, uh, there's nothing loaded about that, that example. I'm not defining it as a good thing or a bad thing or an ideal thing or a non-ideal thing. I'm just trying to give an example of what it means to fill the space and then to withdraw. So filling the space means, or maybe a better example, parenting. Right? So there's a stage in parenting where the parent is telling the child everything what to do. Right? Do this, don't do that, go here, don't go there. Right? The child's young. And then at a certain point, hopefully, the um, relationship transitions, and instead of the parent telling the child what to do, 
right? The parent steps back and allows the child to make decisions because the child is no longer a little child. The child is older, right? So the child um, is now empowered to make their own decisions, to stand on their own two feet. How is the child empowered? By the parent taking a step back. So it's by the withdrawal, the tzimtzum, if you will, that gives space for the other to emerge and to, to blossom. And that's what we're talking about here. The same idea, again, no human example, no physical example is going to perfectly match up to the spiritual idea because God is infinite and it's, you know, definitely a different ballgame and, and, and we can't project our way onto God. Nonetheless, the Kabbalists do use this terminology to kind of bring this idea into our minds. And that is that originally, initially, God fills all space. When God decides, and I use that in air quotes, right? Whatever that means, God decided to create the world, God withdraws, at least to us, God withdrew, and that allows us to have space. What's the point here? The point is like this. We have an example. The example that he gives is teacher and student. And when it comes to a teacher and a student, so we have a similar idea. And that is, if the, teacher wants, if the teacher wishes to teach the student, the teacher also has to withdraw, has to be mitzamtzim, has to tzimtzum him or herself in order to produce ideas that are on the level of the student. So, again, the example that I've given before is Einstein walking into a fifth grade science class. Albert Einstein walking into fifth grade science. If he starts talking on his level, nothing, nothing doing. Students are not going to get anything. But if Einstein puts away his own understanding, right? He puts it to the side. He removes it and reemerges his ideas through the lens or through the mind, through his at least perception of the mind of the student, then there can be a conversation and then there can be instruction. So as long as the original light is shining, the students are not going to get anything. When I say the original light, the original light of his wisdom is shining, students are not going to get anything. But the moment he's able to, Einstein, pull that away, and re-emerge a more finite, a more limited light of wisdom, that's something that is sustainable within the kalim, within the vessels of the student's mind. All of that, though, is only necessary as long as the teacher, Einstein in this example, is teaching. But what if Einstein is not teaching? What if Einstein is learning or thinking or, you know, I don't know, I just picture Einstein writing formulas on a board somewhere. I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know if that's, uh, that's the way it works. But, yeah, what if he's just reveling in his own wisdom? Then he doesn't need a symptom. You with me on this? You don't need a symptom if you're not teaching, right? The teacher doesn't need to be metzamtzim, doesn't need to withdraw their own ideas and, 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 and conceal them and shine a more limited light of wisdom if there's no student. Similarly, in a similar vein, Right. God doesn't need to do a tzimtzum if we don't exist or if we're not intended to exist. Now, spoiler alert, we're here, so there was a tzimtzum, but if we weren't here or if God didn't decide to create the world, you wouldn't need a tzimtzum. So that's what he's saying here. 
that the whole tzimtzum concealment and then a new revelation that's limited that the world can sustain and can, can all of that stuff is only post God's decision to create. But pre that, the light is in its full, full measure. So again, the way he jumps into this is in chapter 29, that opening paragraph. That, again, I'm just going to read it one more time. Before a teacher desires to transmit a concept or wisdom to a student. In other words, if you're not teaching, then the light of the intellect and wisdom is shining fully and truly. Because within himself or herself, right, the wisdom, the intellect, the chachma, doesn't need to be contracted, doesn't need to be concealed at all. Another example. Let's talk about art. So the art, the artist has an artistic vision. Whether it's painting, or whether it's music, or whether it's film, or whether it's literature, or whether it's poetry, any, any medium of art that you can think of, right? The artist, you would hope, you would think, we're assuming the artist has a vision. And, you know, that's a chachma, that's a chachma um, idea, or chach, that's a chachma notion, right? The idea of a creativity and a vision, all that is chachma. So we're assuming that the artist has an abundance of chachma, good. In order for the artist to convey the vision to someone else, there needs to be a tzimtzum. The artist has to think, well, how am I going to take this big idea, this vision, and convey it to the people who are going to be viewing or reading or listening or whatever it is, enjoying my art? How... How am I going to communicate it in a way that it's receivable? I don't know if that's the right word. That it's um, receptive or that it's accepted by the audience that I want. Right? That's why you know, if, if you write a book or whatever it is, the first question is, well, who's your audience? Because that will determine if it's, if it's correct or not. Right? Who's your audience? Are you writing this book? I wrote a book. I, I wrote, I've, I've written several books, as many of you know. Um, I wrote a book called A Touch of Passover. Anybody familiar? I'm going to stop sharing for a moment so I can see the online hands go up. Anybody familiar with A Touch of Passover? Okay, I'm raising my hand because I wrote it. Okay. Uh, you saw it? Okay, you saw it online. Okay. It's a board book. You know what? A, no, no, not B-O-R-E-D. No, no, no. That's not B-O-A-R-D. Right? It's a board book. You know those for the little, little, little kids? They have that stiff board book so that the kids can't rip it or whatever it is. So they just put the teeth marks in it. Joking. No. But, or not, because it could be. I don't know, depending on the kid. So board books are great for little kids, designed for little kids. Now, okay, let me ask you another question. Are you familiar with touch and feel books? Yeah. Touch the fuzzy bunny. Touch the smooth elephant ears. I don't know, whatever. So we decided when I was working and publishing back in Brooklyn, back in the day, you know, and Brooklyn was still cool. I'm kidding. I don't know. It may be still cool. So back in the day, so I was in publishing. I think it's still cool. So um, no, it's not cool anymore. No, it's just like, it's just expensive. Yeah, I think it's just expensive. It's different. Okay. All right. Whatever. So when Brooklyn was cool, that's because then I left and then everything tanked. Prices went up and cool went down and that was it. But anyway, getting back. Oh, it's. All right, fine. <laughs> so here's the deal. You concealed all of your coolness away from Brooklyn. You know? Yeah, so now Atlanta is cool. <laughs> so here's the deal. 
you know, we decided, we were thinking like, you know, I always want to innovate in, in the Jewish publishing space because, you know, why not? Why, why be stagnant? So we published a series of books and you can find them online. I'm not, I'm not pushing anything necessarily, although by now. Um, so it's a series of touch and feel books called A Touch of, we did, we did A Touch of Shabbat, A Touch of Hanukkah, A Touch of the High Holidays, See, you didn't know you could have gotten one for this past month. It was like all the holidays. And a touch of, wait, touch of holidays, touch of Passover, touch of Hanukkah. Oh, and a touch of Passover. So I worked on the production of, of several of these, and I wrote a touch of Passover. Here's what the script consisted of. You guys ready? Touch the sticky wine. Feel the crunchy matzah. Right, that was like the extent of, of the, uh, of the right. no, okay, there's a little bit more. There's a little bit more. I don't mean to minimize it too much. Um, but it's really taking, and I'm not sure why I'm mentioning this, but I'm assuming it's because of the idea of tzimtzum, of taking something and like really, really, really reducing it. Look, if you're not writing a touch and feel book on Passover, you don't need to come up with such, you know, um, basic ideas for the little kids. Basic ideas is touch the crunchy matzah. But if you're writing a touch and feel book, then that's what you have to do. So what's the point? The point is that as long as, thank you, Maureen. As long as we are in our own heads, don't eat a tzimtzum. Go cray, go nuts, enjoy, enjoy the full measure of the light. Enjoy all the, all the brilliance. But the moment you're communicating with somebody else, you need a tzimtzum. Now, the extreme example that we're giving, that I'm giving, is the Einstein and the fifth graders, because that's the extreme brings out the concept, I think. But in truth, in every conversation, you need to do a little bit of tzimtzum and a little bit of kav. Kav is the limited light that follows the tzimtzum, not the big light, the limited light, the new light that's limited. You need to take away your full measure and perspective and whatever, and then be able to communicate on a more... Um, limited level to the audience. So again, when we're talking about, oh, I know how we got into this, we're talking about artists and vision. So you have a vision, you have a concept. But then you have to think about, well, who's your audience? Oh, that's how I got into this. Because who's your audience? You could write a book on Passover for a two-year-old where it's mainly a tactile experience. By the way, I helped source the tact, back to the book. So I helped source the tactile materials, like the sticky wine. There's literally like a sticky thing I don't know how many uses you get from that until it stops becoming sticky because it gets like lint and fuzz. But it's shipped with like a little overlay and you get it super sticky. What happens after that is no longer the publisher's responsibility. But anyway, here's the point. It, it, think about Passover. Let's say you have a theme. You have a big idea about Passover. Like you have a theme about Passover that you want to share with the world. How do you do it? You could do it in any number of ways. You can make a song. You can write a book, you can write a play, poetry, you can paint something, you can, you can teach a class, you can do whatever, any sort of thing. But here's the question, who's your audience? And based on your audience, you have to tailor the message. So if your audience is two-year-olds, you got to figure out how to communicate your big idea of Passover to the two-year-old. And you know what? You got to start with the two-year-old in mind. You can't start with your big idea. I mean, you have, obviously, you have your big ideas, so you're not, like, totally letting go of it. But you have to put that aside. That's the tzimtzum. And now think about, through the, through the mind of the two-year-old, 
How are we? Oh, it's still sticky. Oh, Fran, you've, oh, okay, nice. Fran is vouching that the touch of Passover is still sticky. Good. All right, the wine is still sticky. Good. We haven't cleaned it up yet. So here's the deal. You know, through the mind of the child, how are you going to communicate your idea? If you're writing this for, for, for young readers, you know, eight, eight-year-olds, how are you communicating it? You know, young adult readers, what, how's your Passover, what's, what's it going to look like? Adult readers, you know, what kind of book are you writing? And that's only literature. And what about the other mediums? The point is like this. That when do things, and I don't mean to say, I'm not saying this in a negative way, it's really a positive way, but when do things become more complicated? When you got another one, when you're dealing with someone else. As long as it's just you, there's no symptom. You don't need to do anything. You just revel in your own brilliance and, and wisdom and understanding and perception, and that's it. It's a party. It's a party in your head. But the moment you now need to deal with someone else, the moment you need to communicate to someone else, so now, it's not about you, it's about them. So you have to have a symptom. Same thing is true with God, which is what we're about to say in the text in chapter 29. If God doesn't create the world, you don't need a symptom, you don't need a kav, you don't need a this, you don't need a world of atzillus, a world of... I know I'm using a lot of Kabbalistic terms and Hebrew terms. You don't need a contraction, you don't need a limited ray of light, you don't need a world of emanation, a world of creation, a world of formation, a world of action, you don't need the ten wrote the ten energies, you don't need the entire hierarchy and structure because it's just God. But when God decides to create, party time. All right, so let's jump back in. Uh, let me check the chat. Oh, nice. Yeah, Susan, go ahead. Um, this is a, just a nugget of an idea, but I'm thinking of, of Buber and I and thou, and I'm thinking about the idea of co-creating in this. And the idea, as a teacher myself, when I put an idea out to my students, I put it out maybe wholesale or the concept out, but I know that they are, I'm going to be co-creating with them because they're going to be attaching it to meanings that they have yes. and bringing it back to me. Yes, excellent. So those are kind of the ideas I'm thinking about if, if you could bounce from that a little bit. That's amazing. So first of all, I want to say thank you for sharing that and um, thank you for teaching because that's a very important thing. Um, so I think what you're, what you're saying is really the ultimate level of this, which is, and I'm going to use the word vulnerability, it's about putting out, a, it's a, it's putting out an idea and not even knowing really where that's going to end up. How the other, it's you're doing your best, but you don't even know how it's going to be. And the truth is, I don't mean vulnerability from a negative place, like, oh, therefore we should shy away from it. It's actually the greatest thing because you're giving the gift to someone else that then they can use in their own way. And, and, and you can watch the magic happen from there. It's, I mean, the maybe, best, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe create, and the idea that you're creating something bigger than yourselves. Yeah, too, yeah, for sure. Create, creation. And the truth is, it's the same with parenting, right? As long as we're holding the, the, our, the hands of our child, Right, so the growth is not there, the independence is not there, and they're not their own, they're not their own match, they're not their own person. And when you allow them to, to walk on their own, right, both literally and metaphorically, then it could be different than what you thought, right? And for in whatever way. But that's where the magic happens, and you find out who they are, not who you wanted them to be, but who they actually are. 
another point, and that, this goes back to God and creation, because look, yesterday was Bereshit. Yesterday we read about the creation. What happens? Things go haywire. I'm saying, one second, let me just clarify what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the Torah, as the Torah describes the origins of, of, of the universe, right? Things go sideways very quickly, right? Remember the flood? Spoiler alert, that's this week's Torah portion, right? God ends up destroying and wiping away humanity because it goes sideways. So what's the message? The message is that when you give autonomy, when you give independence, when you give, when you co-create, then now you are, your ride is hitched to the other. It's not all about you. So if you wanted it to only be about you, then don't go into any scenario where someone else is around. Because, right, if it's only about you, then you have the way you understand it, and the light is full, and there's no symptom, there's no this, there's no nothing. But the moment there's another, now all bets are off. For, and I, I don't mean this in negative. I know it's sounding negative. I'm talking about, you know, I don't know, vulnerability and floods and destruction. I don't mean it only negative. I mean positive. Look, why did God create the world? Ultimately, why did God create the world? Ultimately, we can't really know why God created the world. But based on what the texts tell us, what the, what the good books tell us, the Kabbalists tell us, God wanted this. God wanted this co-creation. God wanted the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right? Doesn't make sense. God wanted it. Listen, I can only impose my own, my, own, my own feelings, and this is right now my own imposition. How boring must it have been for God just to be the only one around? It's boring. So God's like, let's mix things up a little bit. Let's put a human being in there. Let's put him in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, with a snake and a tree of knowledge, forbidden fruit. Let's see what happens. What could go wrong? I love it. God's like, Adam and Eve, you can have whatever you want except for that one tree. Next scene. <laughs> They're over at the tree. I mean, that's the first thing you don't tell someone, right? It's like, yet yeah, you can't have that. Really? I really want that now. Like, what? There's a, there's a medrash that tells us that, God, that Adam, at some point, Adam turned to God and said to God, I'm getting the feeling that this was a setup. Because the, in the Torah, which preceded the world, you know, Torah is the blueprint of the, of the universe. And the Torah talks about what to do when somebody dies. And death is only a result of our sin. So if we hadn't sinned, then there would be no death. But the Torah talks about death, which means that you knew we were going to sin. So it's a setup. Let alone the fact that God put the snake and God did this and God you know, facilitated things. And the, the way the account goes is God is silent. You know what it means when there's an accusation and there's silence? You know what that usually means? There's a kernel of truth. And the way it's explained, by the way, there's very strong language in Kabbalah. Very strong language in Kabbalah. Like if I would read to you these texts, I probably have some PDFs on my computer that I can pull up now. If I would read this stuff to you, you would be like blown away. The extent to which, according to the Kabbalists, God orchestrated the sin of Adam and Eve. And not saying that to let them off the hook because they made a choice. In their own lives, they made a choice. But the fact that it was on some level orchestrated, the fact that on some level, and, and listen to what I'm saying here, because I have to be very subtle here. 
or very, I don't want the nuance to be lost. It was against God's will, but it was fully intended to be. That's a hard, that's a hard duality to really embrace. It was against God's, it was not based, it was not per the ruts on the will of God, but it was absolutely the plan. The plan was that this should be the case. Now, not that therefore Adam and Eve were forced to sin, it was still a choice, but the idea of giving, look, once there's a symptom and you give space to the other, at that point, the other, the other is present. And, and Susan, like you said, when you're co-creating ideas with your students, you can present the idea, you allow them to learn, and they take the idea, and they, and, they, and they grow into it, or they integrate it with themselves, and they, you know, they understand it based on their life experiences, based on or how they need to apply it, based on what they know or what they need to know or how they need to be. And that's the magic. And that's where we let go. You create art, right? You paint a beautiful painting. You put it up in a gallery, and people come and look at it. And to everybody that walks in, it could mean something else. And that's a part of the beauty of it. And that's all that Simpson. That symptom is the space that we allow for the other. But, but here's the point in chapter 29. All of this presupposes the existence and the concern, the existence of and the concern for the other. Without the other, there's no symptom. There's no, it's just me and my, my understanding and my vision. All right, let's get back inside. Um, chapter 29, this is going to be. Hold on. Yeah. Chapter 29. This is the last. Okay, the big paragraph at the bottom of the page. Page 64. In like manner. Right? Just like a teacher, right? Doesn't need a symptom if they're not teaching. In a like manner, before God's will to create arose, the very concept of symptom was irrelevant. Right? If God's not creating, you don't need a symptom. And the essential ain't self-light, the infinite light, shown as it truly is. So the point is like this. Before God... One second, I need to, I need to add something. Persona kaviyachal. It's interesting. There's a word missing, or a phrase missing from the English. The word in Hebrew is kaviyachal. Anybody know what the word kaviyachal means? Kaviyachal means so to speak, or so-called. Remember I did air quotes before? When we talk, when he mentions God's will to create, before God's will to create arose, and it was before God decided to create, decided is in air quotes. Why? I can't tell you exactly why, but it sounds like it's humanizing God a little bit to say that God decided. God didn't know if he wanted to create, then he decided to create, and then there was a symptom. So there's a little bit of, a, uh, of an air quote there just to understand we're talking about God and not a human being who makes decisions and then maybe changes their mind. <coughs> but again, here's the point. Before God's will to create a rose, you don't need a symptom. The light shines fully and infinitely. Therefore, back inside. <coughs> Therefore, all levels of symptom and expansion called concealment and revelation 
right? Tzimtzum is the concealment of the light, and expansion is a revelation. Revelation that comes after the symptom is limited, but it's still revelation. So all of these different levels of symptom and expansion for the purpose of transmission <coughs> are actually equal relative to the true essential and self light. In other words, on the ground, after God decides to create, so there's symptom and there's revelation, there's symptom and there's expansion, there's con- contraction and expansion. There's concealment, there's revelation, and there's a whole series of steps, right? There's the original symptom, and then an expansion from that. You have all of these different steps of of protocol in order to get to creation. But relative to the original, essential, ain't so light, they're all equal. The concealment is not a concealment. The revelation is not a revelation. Everything is equal relative to the Ain Sof, to the infinite essence, to what preceded it. And he, he explains. Let's, go, let's continue back inside. In relation, this is like third of the way down in that last paragraph, the big paragraph from the bottom of 64. In relation to him, to God, really to the essence, it cannot be said that Concealment precedes revelation, or that from revelation comes concealment, for the, tr- for the two are truly equal. In other words, from the vantage point of God's original infinite light, from that vantage point, you don't have tzimtzum, you don't have concealment, you don't have revelation, you don't have, inf- you don't have um, um, darkness, you don't have limited revelation. All of these terms are equally... Um, insignificant. To the essence of God, there's no concealment. To the essence of God, there's no revelation after the concealment. These are only things and processes that are needed when you're dealing with someone else or something else. But relative to God himself, all of these steps are, are unnecessary, irrelevant, and don't affect God himself. <coughs> Let's continue. Let's continue inside. In relation to him, even the power of tzimtzum, of sorry, of concealment and tzimtzum may be called revelation. Right? Relative to God's essence, even the tzimtzum could be revelation, and revelation might be called maybe called concealment. Relative to the essence. So, for example, getting back to my example of the touch and feel book, right? That's, uh, that's the example that, we're, that let's, let's focus on right now. So the author has a vision for the book, right? Or has, has a vision of, of, of a lesson of Passover. I don't know if this is the great example, because whatever, it's a touch and feel book. And it's, you know, maybe not conveying like a deep vision of Passover, but more of a basic understanding. But either way. Let's talk about, you have like the full notion of Passover. You know, full notion, full, a full idea. Pre-Tzimtzum, pre-other, pre-book, pre-creation, etc. Then, when you're thinking about creating something for another, now you have to have a Tzimtzum. Okay, Tzimtzum is, okay, forget my ideas. What do they need to hear? How do they need to hear? What's the best way to convey it? Etc., etc., etc. 
אוקיי? But all of that symptom is only in, this, in, in, in the context of stepping down into another field, into another, another um, space. When I'm stepping down into another space to, to, to commune, to connect with someone else, then I need to operate with these points. But if I'm not stepping down, if I'm not in that space, if I'm in my own space, there's no concealment. There's no post-concealment revelation. The symptom doesn't conceal. The revelation doesn't reveal. There's not, nothing. It's not, it's not all. That's what he says. He says, and, and the concealment doesn't come before the revelation. The revelation doesn't come from the concealment. There's no, there's no concealment. There's no revelation. It's, it just is what it is. In the essence, he says, the two are truly equal. And now he quotes... A very powerful idea that could be very misunderstood and could be used for nefarious purposes, but nonetheless, let's read it inside. And you see in the footnote there, 152, it says, CF Tehillim. This is based on a verse from Psalms, chapter 139, verse 12. It says, Before him, before God, darkness is like light. You see why this could be misunderstood? Because it means that to God, to the essence, good and evil may be equivalent. That's how it could be misunderstood. Before him, darkness is like light, i.e. they are equal, and the darkness does not darken. The way it's understood in Kabbalah is not to say that before God, before the essence, it doesn't really matter whether we're doing good or evil because it's like too big to, to care. The way we understand it is regarding tzimtzum and revelation. For the darkness, which is the tzimtzum, and concealment is not called darkness and concealment relative to the light of the atmos. Atmos means the essence of the ainsof, of the infinite. So relative to the essence, you never have a tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is only relative to the other that you need to convey this idea, message, energy to. So relative to the other, you need a symptom so that it can go to the other and be accepted by them. But before the notion of the other, there's no symptom. And even after the notion of the other, to the essence from whence everything is coming, there is no symptom. In other words, stated simply, when the teacher is teaching in the modality of teaching so then there's a tzimtzum and a lesson plan and understanding that you're working with the student, etc. But that doesn't mean, even when there's a tzimtzum, it doesn't mean that on an essential level, the teacher ever forgot what they know or ever didn't think how they thought. And it also doesn't mean that the teacher doesn't learn from the student. But what it means on, on an essential level is that in the, in the, in the, exper- in the classroom, in the experience of the classroom, that's where you have this entire process of tzimtzum, hispashtos, giloy. I'm using Hebrew words here, but the contraction and then the expansion and the revelation and the concealment after that and the summary and the, all those things happen within the context of, of the classroom. Out of the classroom, the teacher is still a person who understands things and the tzimtzum doesn't take away from their understanding. Because, just because, in other words, stated simply, 
Just because the teacher is teaching students, just because Einstein is teaching fifth graders, doesn't mean that Einstein suddenly is no longer Einstein and doesn't have that essential wisdom. Essential wisdom is still there. So let's continue inside. Similarly, so again, the concealment is not a concealment to the essence. And similarly, he says, <coughs> the revelation that follows concealment and simsum, which is called light, cannot, from the perspective of God's essence, be termed light. Right? The light after the tzimtzum. How light is it to the essence? The big reveal to the fifth grade students, to Einstein's essential wisdom, is that, wis- is that, is that light? The tzimtzum doesn't take away from it, and that limited revelation doesn't add to it. It's not light. As it is said, the pure light is dark relative. Look at the top of 65. The pure light is dark (coughs) relative to the cause of all causes. Even what we would consider to be pure light relative to to God's essence, the cause of all causes, is dark. So what's the point? The point is that there is another reality outside of ours. I wrote in the email that today we're going to learn about the pre-Tsimtsum reality. And that's what we're talking about right now. Pre-Tsimtsum means pre-God's decision to create. It means pre-God deciding, you know what, I want to create a world and have others there. Relative to that pre creation state which doesn't go away because of creation which is always there the essence is always there relative to that state this doesn't really change things for God it's not like God's light is really hidden it's not like this it's not like the concealment is concealment to the revelation is revelation to God's essence there's a steady reality it's just to us these things are significant to us the fact that there's a tzimtzum and a revelation and another tzimtzum and another revelation, that's what allows us to be. But relative to God, God still has his essential light. By the way, this touches on the notion, and I think I mentioned this um, at some point previously. This touches on the notion of tzimtzum lokipshuta, which means tzimtzum is not literal. When we talk about contraction or concealment, it doesn't mean that God literally removed himself from the space. It means to us, God removed himself from the space, but not literally. It's like, again, think about Albert Einstein. If he is teaching fifth graders successfully, doesn't mean he's no longer Albert Einstein. It doesn't mean he, doesn't, he forgot all of his theories. Whoops, I had theory of relativity. I should have written it down because I taught these kids and now I can't remember anything. It's not how it works. He still has the wisdom. In this moment, in this context, there's concealment and limited revelation afterwards. And there's all this stuff that goes on in order to teach, to facilitate this conversation. But it doesn't mean that essentially he's radically redefined or he's radically altered. That's why this, is, this touches on a bigger idea. The idea that God is unchanged, is unchanged by creation. God is the ultimate changer. God changes and affects and creates, but God is not changed. Ani havaya loshanisi, God says. I, God, loshanisi, have not changed. In the prayers every morning, we say in the, in the 
the preparatory prayers for the morning prayers, we say um, there's our prayers and there's what we say before that and what we say before that, right? It's like a speaker that gets up and says, you know, here's what I want to say before I start talking, right? The, the intro, the preamble. So in our preamble of the prayers, and I don't mean to minimize it, it says, I mean, I'll get a, you know, let me get a sit there. I'll, just, I'll read it for you because it's exactly this point. Give me a second. Let me shimmy over to my bookcase, bookshelf. The Siddur prayer book. Here we go. So in the Chabad prayer book, in this edition, it's on page number 17. And here's what it says. You were the same, referring to God, you. You were the same before the world was created. You are the same since the world has been created. You are the same in this world. You are the same in the world to come. In other words, God doesn't change. We change. We have been made to be. We weren't, and then we are. But to God's essence, there's really no change. And that's what he's saying. All of the tzimtzum, all of the concealment, all of the expansion, all of the revelation, all of that stuff is only relative to creation. But it's not relative to God's essence. So therefore, on, on, on a very real level, on the essence level, tzimtzum, concealment, and revelation are all one and unified with essence. So let's continue. Top of 65. Okay, top of 65, where it says, hence... That paragraph right there. Oh, it's... Flip it around. Hence, it is specifically from the atmos of the infinite Ain Sof Light, from the essence of the infinite Ain Sof Light, which is beyond concealment and revelation. It's from this space that the synthesis and joining of the two levels derives. So that from concealment comes revelation, and from revelation, concealment. For in his presence, darkness is like light. They are literally equal. Essentially, what he's saying here is that how can two opposites come together? It's when the two opposites are become aware that, that at their source, they didn't begin as opposites. They began from the same essential space. So when we're stuck in our limited mindset of I am this and you are that, then we can fight. But if we go back to the beginning, or in this case, before the beginning, before the desire even for the beginning, go back to the essence, on an essence level, that symptom is not symptom, right? Concealment is not concealment. Revelation is not revelation. It's all part of the same essence. It's all part of, of essence. And that symptom doesn't hide and the revelation doesn't reveal. And therefore, I mean, one second, therefore, when we come to the reality on the ground, right? When we come to the reality on the ground, where there does seem to be distinction, the two parties in this case, concealment and revelation, symptom and gili, right? Contraction and expansion, the two can get along and work with each other, sensing or knowing, so to speak, that they come from the same infinite source and in that space they're all one. Yeah? So, so is Chabad 
disagreeing with the, the Midrash who talks about you should not look back and try to figure out what happened before the world existed. You're saying there, in general no commission to discuss what below and what above was before and what is after. Okay, so li listen, I, I, hear, I hear that. We have to look in the commentaries and see exactly how that works, how that jives with Kabbalah. But there, I'm sure there are commentaries that explain how that works with the notion of exploring it. I, 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 wh where is that again? What's the source on that? Oh, it's from the Medrash? Yeah, from the Medrash. Okay. All right, so we have to, we have to look at that and, and see what that means. In so oftentimes... It's meant to be a cautionary note because it's like the Talmud says, I think, or maybe also the Medrash, that we shouldn't study the Maeser Merkava, the story of the chariot of Ezekiel, right? And the reason for that is because it could give us a misimpression about God and about, you know, different things. So it's, it's kind of a cautionary tale. So here it sounds a little bit stronger, like you have no permission to, to ponder these things. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, listen, Kabbalah is very well sourced and very. Um, a yeah, but but there's I'm sure there are commentaries that explain it that it means in this context or without the proper training or it means certain teachings of it that could lead one you know to heretical thoughts or to misunderstandings. I'm sure it's uh, it's highly caveated. I'm just making up a word uh, you know a tense over there, but I'm sure it's 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 very highly you know, qualified, that's a better word, with, um, with, with when it's kosher or not. What we study is um, Kabbalah that has been um, sanctioned and designed specifically for everyone to study. So that's what we study. So the, how we explain that, I would have to look it up and look at the commentaries, but it's an interesting, yeah. I think sometimes like, things change, you know, over time. You know, because... Before, like, Kabbalistic teachers were not even available to the public at all. Like, you had to be, like, a certain age. Right, yeah. Know. Yeah, so Adam is making a point that sometimes things change over time. The truth is, the truth is, I was actually mentioning this, I think, in our Lunch and Learn on Wednesday, maybe. Um, anyway, I, I mentioned this, that um, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, was imprisoned. And he was sent to prison for 53 days. And there were charges of treason against the government. And it was because he was sending tzedakah money to Israel, which was then under Turkish rule and whatever. It's a complicated story. But he felt, the author Rebbe felt that maybe it was a spiritual challenge to him because he had been teaching a lot of the deeper insights of Torah, a lot of the Kabbalah. So he thought maybe this is a sign like he went a little too far. Maybe he should hold back. So... According to tradition, and he reported this himself, the souls of the Baal Shem Tov and the Magadim is rich, so the founders of the Hasidic movement appeared to him in prison, and he asked them, should I stop? And they said, no. Now that you've started really spreading it out, keep on going. You should know the Chabad, Chabad philosophy, what is Chabad? First of all, Chabad is Chachma, Bin, and Dat, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, the three intellectual powers. Um, but Chabad philosophy is really taking Kabbalah and, and making it, getting to the essence of it and showing its relevance 
in the here now in a way that's understandable. Chabad means an intellectual approach to Kabbalah. So it's designed in a way that should be understood. The concealment can change over time too. Like, yeah. Just like you said, I mean, if Einstein's explaining something to a fifth grader, there's a higher level of concealment there. But if that fifth grader is now in college, the concealment is going to be a lot less. Right. Or maybe if the fifth grader is not living in the early 1900s, but is living now in 2020, it could, right, it could be information is different. And, I, I and that's what all this is really about, is that we kind of live in an information. There's things that a 10-year-old knows that somebody that was 50 years old didn't know 200 years ago. Right. There's things your kids are much smarter than... I mean, like, your grandparents probably can't figure out how their phone works as well as your kids do. <laughs> right. It doesn't mean that your grandparents are stupid or something. Right. It means that there's more information. Correct, yeah, yeah. No, 100%, things evolve. Right. And the truth is, when... when um, when the Alter Rebbe was challenged by some for teaching Kabbalah, so he gave, he gave two examples, two reasons, two justifications for it. He said, number one, he said, um, imagine, imagine he, gave, he gave a parable. Imagine the king and queen, they have one child, the prince. And imagine the prince got very, very sick. And so sick that the, the prince was dying. The only way the prince could survive the only way. I brought in doctors and experts and everyone said there's no chance. There's no way to save this child. There's so one guy who came in and said there's only one hope for your child. One hope. There's the, the crown jewel. One of a kind. That jewel that's on the king's crown. The crown jewel. We have to take it. it this might work. If we take that jewel, that gem, we crush it, mix it with a little water or whatever it is and create a potion out of it and feed it and, and have the child drink, it might make the child better. And, and the doctor, this doctor, this expert, was even hesitant to say it to the king because he's suggesting that the king ruin the crown. The king says, it's not even a question. If it might work, do it. They did it, and indeed the, the, the child was healed. They couldn't even get into the mouth almost, but a few drops went in, and it got healed. The author said this in response to someone who once saw pages of Kabbalah floating around in the streets. You with me on this? Like in the, in the gutters, in the garbage, whatever. So they were saying these were the most precious secret teachings and now you're teaching it so far and wide that pages are even ending up, you know, in, you know on the side of the road. No good. After I said, it's like the, we need it today. And there's another answer that's aligned with what you said, Adam. But we need it today because we're in a state, the world is in, is in a greater spiritual challenge than ever. This was a few hundred years ago. <laughs> Little did he know how, how challenging it would be in 2020 to remain spiritually centered, right? With all the distractions today and all the other stuff going on. So we need whatever we can get, even if it's taking the, the, the crown jewel and crushing it. And, pouring, and even if most of the drops are, are not going in, but even if a few drops go in and help, that's a benefit. The second reason that he said is because we're getting closer to the era of Mashiach, the, a better time, enlightened time. And the closer we get, the more we taste from that, uh, that energy. So, so it's kind of like before Shabbat, there's a custom to taste the Shabbat food, like Friday afternoon. As we're cooking for Shabbat, we we're supposed to taste from it just to like, you know, integrate the Shabbat dishes into the Friday. This is a custom we can all get behind, right? <laughs> to taste a little kugel, a little chicken soup, a little whatever. So it's kind of like before Mashiach comes, before like the world is fully 
enlightened, we're getting tastes. We're getting tastes of that. So, yeah, it is a different era. Now, would I say that, you know, off the bat to explain? I'm hesitant to say, like, yeah, that's not, man, that doesn't apply anymore because it's just, but there's, that's what I'm saying. There's, there's definitely, com I'm sure there are commenters on it that, you know, that qualify it. And in addition to these ideas that Adam mentioned, that I'm mentioning, we have a greater need today than ever before. Maybe in those times they didn't need it. And there was only a danger and not a benefit. Today we definitely need it. And also we're getting, we're tasting the kugel, the Kabbalah kugel of Mashiach. Simpler, you know, hundreds of yeah. years ago, they didn't need as much explanation as we, like, the more your intellect grows, the more you need to explain it. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I, th I think what the, one of the benefits of Kabbalah is that it, it allows us to appreciate the deeper meaning of Torah and, and, and the mitzvot and really of everything that we're doing. And that's important today, as you said. You know, maybe back in the day, people were a little bit more obedient or simple or they, they didn't need the explanation. You just do it because you do it. I mean, I think if we even think back, you know, many, many of you have told me um, at some point or another about, you know, maybe an experience with uh, a rabbi of your youth or Sunday school or whatever. And you might have been told, well, you're not, you're not allowed to ask why. You do it because that's it. You do it because that's it. That's how we do it. Today it's a little bit different. Why is it a? I don't know. I don't want to judge why it's different. It's different today. It's hard. Be hard pressed to tell somebody, tell a kid today, do it just because you have to. I mean, you could say it, but I don't know if it's going to work. It's not going to work as well as it worked back in the day. I don't know if it even worked then, but at least that's what everyone was saying. So it was part of, it was part of the collective uh, experience. All right, let's get back inside. I think we're up to the last paragraph of chapter twenty-nine. So let's jump in. This then is the idea, oh, beautiful. This then is the idea behind the unification and synthesis of the letters Yod and Hey. Now, what are, the yod, what, what are we talking about here? The Yod and Hey are the first two letters of God's name. They also correspond in Kabbalah to Chachma, Yod is Chachma. It's the, well, it's the concealment. Okay, Chachma is a creative idea, the flash of, of insight, but it's still concealed. You, still, you don't really know it yet, so that's why it's called concealment. That's why it's small. So we have the Yod, and then the He is the expansion, the Bina, where you, you, you flesh it out. So this is the idea behind the unification and synthesis of these two letters, Yod and He, Chachma, Bina. The concealment of the point of the Yod, Chachma, becomes revealed in the letter He. So Yud, we even explained before the shape of the Yud. It starts off with a point, then it gets a little bit broader. It's still tiny, right? But the bottom point of the Yud then is what's leaning toward, leaning into the He, which is the expansion. And from the revelation of the He comes concealment, and that's the summary. We said that <laughs> the little leg of the He, right, the He is a top stroke and a bottom stroke, a broad stroke, this way and that way, um, left to right, and then top down, then it has a little bit of a, a little leg in the bottom, bottom left corner. And that little leg is kind of like the, the summary, or one of the examples that I gave before in a previous lesson is, so you have this process of, let's say, painting, where you have an idea, a vision, still abstract, so that's the yud, and then you expand it, the whole, the whole process, create a process, and then you paint something. And then you, got, you have to summarize it. What's the point? And that's the name that you give to the painting. The title, the title that you give to the painting, right? That's the title is, 
the nakuda the, is, is the, the concealment, so to speak, the summary that comes after the revelation. So we have, it's really like expansion and contraction. You have contraction, expansion, contraction again. Or in the language here, we have concealment, yud, revelation, hey, and once again, concealment. This is, let's continue inside, one, two, three, four lines into this last paragraph of chapter 29. This is the unity of Havain Bechachma and Chacham Bebina, which means literally, Havain Bechachma means you should have Bina in Chachma, and Chacham Bebina means you should have Chachma in Bina. Havain Bechachma means that even in your Chachma concealment, it should lend itself to expansion. And Chacham Bebina means even in your expansion of Bina, it should lend itself to the summary, to the, to the point. So even in your vision, you should have a path to implement. And even in your implementation, you should have a vision. Right? It works. You're working back and forth and back and forth, and both are meant to work in concert. By the way, this is not, certainly not disconnected from what I said at the beginning of the class, which is about the dichotomies that exist within the human condition. And what's the dichotomy? The dichotomy so often is between vision and implementation. Bottom line is, what, what's our vision in life? What do we want for ourselves or the world? Okay, articulate that. And then, what are we doing, right? On a day-to-day basis, what are we doing? And are they the same? So, havein b'chachma, chacham b'bina means your vision, chachma, should integrate with your bina, with what you're doing, with your expansion. And your expansion of bina should be driven by your chachma, your vision. All right, and so too, the incorporations of the sefirot of Chachma and Bina within one another as explained above. So not only does one, does Chachma lead to Bina and Bina lead back to Chachma, but Chachma and Bina themselves are integrated with each other. This is brought about, oh, so, so, so where does the synthesis come from? How is it possible? Within the human being, that our vision should lead to some sort of plan and the plan should be you know, summarized in the vision. How does it work? If they're so different, Chachma and Bina are so different, how do they work in concert? So he explains, this is brought about because in the name Havaya, which is the Yud, Ke, Vav, Ke, the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. In other words, the Yud and the He, Chachma and Bina, they're all part of God's name. So he says, why is this? Why is there a unity between these two letters? Because in the name Havaya, because in that name of God, there shines the essential Ein Sof light, which is above the whole order of being, the whole Ishtashalus, and far, far higher than the categories of concealment and revelation. Because in, basically what he's saying is, because in the name of Havaya, you have shining a light that transcends the particulars of the Yod and the He, the Chachma and the Bina, the expansion, the, the contraction and the expansion, therefore, the two can come together. It's like the example that I gave before, several weeks ago, about the angels that are fighting amongst each other, but when they stand in front of the king, in front of God, they're obedient, right? Suddenly, all their differences go away because they're in a much greater state. That's what we mean by Oseh Shalom B'Ramav, he who makes peace above, who Yaseh Shalom Aleinu should also make peace for us below. What does it mean? Different angels, Machog, Avril, 
Rafal, different angels, different camps of angels. And each one is different. And left to their own devices, they might be, might be, there might be a little tension. But when they're standing before God, all the distinctions melt away. That's what he says over here. So, in the name of in God's name, Yud Kei Vav Kei, Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey, in God's name, there's the essential light that shines. And when the essential light is shining, that brings together the opposites, because there are no opposites in the face of divine essence. Hence, it is this light that creates oneness and synthesis within the name Havai, unifying its elements of concealment and revelation, Chachman Bina. So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that in a few things. Universal peace is, as I said before, is tied into individual peace. So if we are at one with ourselves, then we can hope to achieve that within the other. Where does the first potential um, friction, where is the first state of potential friction? Within our own mind, our chachma and our bina, our creative vision and our more um, analytical mind. And if we're able to achieve synthesis within ourselves, we can achieve synthesis within the larger society. How is synthesis achieved? It's only when we're plugged into something greater than the individual parts. So as long as we're stuck in the sandbox, as long as we're stuck in like the particulars, like, I'm this, you're that, we're fighting. But when we have a bit of a bigger vision, when we have the ability to see beyond the particulars, then we can start to get along. Then we can start to get along because we're seeing a little bit beyond, you know, what's the here and now. So, Here's the, the, short, the short summary of today because we had the Chachma, the Bina expansion. Let's get back to the Chachma. Let's get back to the point. The point of, the, the, the summary of today is that in divine essence, like in the teacher's mind before the desire, the decision to teach, everything, all the ideas are unified or the idea is just known as it is. So too in God's mind, so to speak, or in God's, rea- God's essence, um, all of the particular spherot and energies are all unified as one. It's only as they unfold in our reality, the process of tzimtzum, concealment and revelation, and concealment and revelation, concealment and revelation, it's only then in our space that we have all of these distinctions that emerge and conflict, potential conflict that emerges. So the key to... Um, withstanding the potential conflict is by transcending to a higher space. On a very practical level, as we'll see, I don't want to give too much away for next week, but as we'll see in our next chapter, chapter 30, the key to bring this down in our lives. So, so now we, one second, so now we know that all conflict begins post-creation. Above that, pre-Tsimtsum, there's no conflict, everything is unified. All right, great. But what does that mean for me right now? So what we're going to say in the next chapter, and again, I'm not going to, I don't want to get, I'm not going to get too, too deep into it. I'm just giving you like a teaser for next time, is that Torah is what channels this divine essential energy into us to allow us to have that bigger picture. The last, um, I don't want to get... Uh, 
I don't want to mention things that are divisive. So I'm going to say this in, in, a, in a very non-specific way. In other words, I'm going to say it, but not specify it. So hopefully you'll understand what I mean. There are ways to look at issues in a divisive way. And then there's a way to look at issues in a way that brings, that brings togetherness, that brings people together, or brings the issues together. And the way that is, from where I'm sitting, is through the vantage point of Torah. We've done this in the past where we've looked at issues, like modern issues, through the lens of Torah, and demonstrated how when you look at it through a Torah lens, there's actually harmony that exists between even different different positions. Anyway, I'm not going to get into specifics, but the point is like this. The point is that we all, we all need a little harmony. We need the external harmony. We need, the, first and foremost, the inner harmony. And the inner harmony is born of connecting to something a bit more transcendent than ourselves. And as we'll see in our next session, that a big part of that is connected with Torah. All right, so my blessing for all of us this week is that we should all have the inner peace, which will lead to the outer peace, which will lead to the global peace, and then we can all enjoy life without all of this, all of this tension. All right, thank you for joining me this morning for Kabbalah and Coffee. Thank you for joining me today here for Kabbalah and Coffee. I want to mention one thank you. Thank you all. Thank you very um, much. Pleasure. Great class. Beautiful. Thank you, Mariana. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Um, I do want to mention something that I think is very important, and that is that tomorrow night we have really a unique opportunity to join together with a Kabbalist and author from Australia, from Melbourne, Australia. His name is Rabbi, Label, Rabbi Dr. Label Wolf. He is a top, top, top scholar. He leads incredible meditations. The program is called the Spirituality and Meditation Workshop. I decided to give it a title that pretty much tells everybody what it's about. It's about spirituality and meditation. So if you're feeling like you could use a dose of spirituality and meditation and you would like a workshop, we have two, it's two sessions, two Monday nights, so it's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and the next, the following Monday also at 8 p.m. Rabbi Wolf is really incredible. And, and if you... If you've never heard him, maybe you've read his book called Practical Kabbalah. I know that some of you have been at events that we've had him here in Atlanta before at. Um, he is really remarkable. Just Google him. Label of L-I-L-A-I-B-L-W-O-L-F. He's, uh, he's, he's remarkable. So we're getting live just for us, Rabbi Label Wolf. So please join us. It's going to be amazing. I know some of you already signed on for that, but I encourage all of you that might not yet be signed on to please join us. 8 p.m. Monday night. All right. It's great to see you all. Take care. Shalom. Bye, all. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Shavuot Tov. Chodesh Tov. Take care. My pleasure. looking at my daughter, like I think your first virtual class was March 18. Exactly. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 March of, wait, wait, when? 18th. Of which month? March. March? Your, your first virtual class. Oh, the virtual, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, it was the week, it was that weekend, basically. Hmm, after everything shut down. Look, this, but I, this class, this text,
do I have my first, I'm going to look up my email, learning how to love. Learning how to love. Let's see if I can find the first, the first email. The class announcement. Look at this. The first session was Sunday, October 27th, 2019. So almost a year ago. Yep. That's the story. Folks. Oh, gosh. Hold on. Ah, crisis. Um, guys, it's really amazing to see everybody and to study together in person. Look, we're just starting this, so there are always going to be some, some, uh, some getting used to and adjustments, but it's great to see you. Thank you all for coming out today. And sorry for my attention, I just have to fix something that somebody just pointed out is broken on our website. So give me a moment. Please give me a moment. All right. Good. All right, we have um, a few announcements here for our in-person crew. All right, fixed. Um, we have... Tonight is our book club, which is an amazing book called Eternal Life. So much fun. Tomorrow night we have um, tomorrow night we have the spirituality meditation workshop. No, nothing Tuesday night. Nothing this Tuesday night. Our course starts next week, and then we have Wednesday night Torah studies. Um, Thursday. Oh, so no Wednesday. We're not. No, we're not meeting this week. I'm actually out of town for Leah's brother's wedding. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah. Which actually, the wedding, I think, is Wednesday night. I should know this. You would think I would know this, but it's, everything's happening so fast. Um, yeah, so, one second, let me think. So, Wednesday night is the wedding. Can I even do the class Wednesday night at 7.30? I'm asking you the question, but I'm thinking right now. I don't know. I don't think so. I think Leah would be very upset if I was live streaming from the chuppah. Wait! Hold on, I can't say that blessing. I got, a, I got a Torah class here that I'm doing. So that's Wednesday night. I don't even know about Wednesday night. Wednesday day, no, because I'm not here. Thursday night, I don't, I'm not sure what that, what that means for the... Oh, stay tuned. That's the bottom line. Stay tuned. As, as the news breaks, you will be the first to know. But I'll be back by next week, Sunday. We're coming back. Thank you. Should be a party. This is, so Leah, ha, my wife has, um, there's 10 of them. This is the youngest. Yeah. Oh, you didn't know? She's one of 10? Five and five, very balanced. This is the last, this is number 10. Last one. And the wedding was actually supposed to be a few months ago. But my mother-in-law, 